everybody. Mike here from What's on Joe Mind. Justin is here with me as well. And our special guest this evening is Larry F. Houston, who was the storyboard director for the G.I. Joe animated series back in the 80s and for G.I. Joe the movie, celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2017, which is kind of hard to believe and and, uh, makes me feel very old. Larry, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Mike. It's hard to believe it's been 30 years, too, but, uh, man, time flies. Like that like that cliche, it's incredible to think that it's that long ago. I, I can still remember the movie. The movie and the series is like, like yesterday, almost. <laughs> the other part of that cliche is you were having fun, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. I was in the right place at the right time in my career, and... It was at the time when um, syndication was just taken off, and so we were able to get out from under the thumb of network busybody micromanagement, and we were able to do a, an, a regular action-adventure show where people punch each other, which we could never do. It sounds weird, but we couldn't do that. <laughs> now, you're the, again, you're the storyboard director for, for G.I. Joe and any number of other shows over the years, and we'll touch more on, on the specifics of those shows in a bit. But like I was telling you pre-show, I don't think a lot of our fans quite understand the role of the storyboard director in the process. On our program, on previous episodes, we've had you know we've had writers from the program, we've had actors from the program, and so we know the very beginning and the very end. And and you kind of fit into that and, and bridge those two gaps. So just just take a few minutes, please, and describe exactly how being the storyboard director fits into the animation process. Okay, well, the the term storyboard director uh, is also is synonymous. With, it is synonymous with being the storyboard artist, and basically, it's like it's like in a comic book. You would get you get a script from the writer, and you're the guy that's going to draw everything that he said. And as a story artist, you have to bring a cinematic discipline to figuring out what the writer wants and how to make it work as a film, and you're basically uh, creating the artwork for the animators to follow once you're done with what the, the visual depiction of the story. So like if a character's got to come in, pick up an object, you're the, you're the guy that picks, that picks the angle. Is it going to be a low angle shot? Is it going to be a medium shot? Is, is the camera going to be high up on the ceiling looking down? So you're, you're basically like cinematographer pretty much like the penciler is in a comic book. You're, you're depicting the scenes, and once you've depicted what was written on the page, you try and you're, you're adding your own style to it of, of, of cinema. Then that, once that board gets approved by the director, the director sends it on to an animation timer who, would, who basically goes through, and he'll take the uh, dialogue and the imagery and figure out how long is this, scene take how much time do i need to make the scene work and he'll he'll time it out he'll put it on timing sheets and then once that's done it goes to checking to make sure everybody did their job and then once that's done they ship it off overseas to the toy at the time back at for gi joe to uh for them to animate and that's and then magically it comes back all on film you know they do the they do all the all the real work but we do all the what we call the uh Pre-production is what we do, what we did back in the 80s. And um, I, when I started on G.I. Joe, I was a storyboard artist. 
I worked on the first miniseries, the very opening scene of the very first mass device where you see the the image of the jets on the ground. It's like the 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 J. Joe jets, and it pulls back. I storyboarded all that. It was a lot of fun because at the time, what I wasn't trying, what I was incorporating, was a lot of anime shots. Back in in the early '80s, anime from Japan was just starting to come into America, and a lot of us were buying these gigantic laser discs from uh, Little Tokyo in in, in Los Angeles, <laughs> and we we go to work. We would have a very long lunch break. We would put on these discs and just start watching it and over and over again because they were doing, they were trying different camera techniques and layout ideas that we hadn't, we were not able to do or we didn't think about before. And so a lot of that stuff, we just absorbed it. And so when G.I. Joe came along, it was a chance for me to incorporate what I had seen and put it into the G.I. Joe shows. So that's what I, that was my participation in that part of the show, the merger of uh, American anime. I was trying to do that kind of stuff and trying to, you know, kick it up a notch, basically. Make it more interesting, the standard stuff that had been, been done for such a long time. We, we really enjoyed watching the anime. The, now, we understood nothing. I mean, it was, all in, it was all in Japanese, so we had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot that had been translated by that point. Nope. But um, the guy we all fell in love with was Miyazaki because the, the way he would direct and storyboard his films, you, you could track the story without words. I mean, you never got the subtext. You need words for that. But the overall general thrust of the story, you could track it very easily. It was amazing how well it was done. And we all, this is back when I was at Filmation. I was at Filmation first in 1980. And then the year after that, that's when I joined Marvel Productions with Stan Lee. And I was working with Stan Lee for about nine years at Marvel Productions, working on almost all of their action-adventure shows. And so when G.I. Joe was one of them, that's when I, can't, I got a chance to be, I definitely wanted to be a director, story artist on that board, that show. And then one of the directors left, moved on, I'm not sure exactly why, but then I got promoted to being a director. So I got a chance to uh, direct a lot of the, I think the last 15 shows I was working as a director on those. And I got a chance to write one. I wrote Hearts and Cannons. So I wrote one of the episodes also. Yeah. So it was a really good opportunity, you know, to become a director. And I got a chance to be a writer on the same series. So that was really cool. Very cool. I always wondered if that was, if that was a conscious decision on your part, or if you guys were just kind of going with, with where where it was it's it's interesting to 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 know that you know you were you were in the driver's seat on that one yeah it was great and they gave us a lot of opportunity to write i did write one episode of spider-man and amazing friends way back when i didn't get credit for it but i got paid for it but i wrote an episode called swarm where spider-man and wrestling fight this guy made out of bees and stuff yeah <laughs> that's awesome i remember that i remember that one yeah i wrote that one so he kind of creeped me out. I mean, mission accomplished. That's probably what you're going for. <laughs> That's what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. You want to bust out the guy made out of the bugs. Yeah. That, that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was itchy for a while. My, my, my older brother who, who, uh, like he, he will have a violent reaction when he hears that for the first time. Oh. <laughs> he, he will immediately start swatting things that are, that are not there in the air. I, I, it was really lucky on that 
on the Spider-Man show because they had, when it was just starting up, they were submitting premises and they were being rejected by NBC. And so the story at the time was named Dennis Marks. And I asked him if I could give, give it a shot. So I said, yes. I wrote up a, you know, I wrote up a character. I think it was John Byrne drew it somewhere in some book of a guy made out of bees. And that, you know, he's going to take over the world, turn everybody into his own drones. But because Spider-Man had radioactive blood, it made him immune. And so that's where the story went from there. And when they submitted that to the networks, they liked it. They went for it. Nice. And uh, so I was like one of the two first premises that they got approved. That gave me a lot of confidence. Like, hey, I got ideas. Look at that. It works. <laughs> so, so you talk about being in the right place at the right time. But obviously, if you're in the right place at the right time, you still got to have some chops. So what, what kind of background do you have in, in cinema? You have to know what these shots are and how to set a scene and all this stuff. You know, where, What's your schooling? Believe it or not, a lot of my schooling is just self-taught. I, I, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, uh, single mom, and um, she moved a lot. I kept losing friends. But the only thing that was very consistent for me was television and comic books, and I, I would always have those as my companion. And at the time, back then, I was watching different you know, TV shows and uh, the Invaders and, and The Fugitive and Voice of the Bottom of the Sea and all that stuff back then. And it was between me watching TV a lot and also reading a lot of comic books. I, I got a, a taste for that. I started learning cinema from watching the TV, but also I learned storytelling from reading a lot of comic books. And it just kind of slowly permeated my psyche, I guess you could say. it. I just started slowly learning it over the years. And um, I picked up a lot of graphic styles from looking at comic books drawn by John Buscema and, and Jack Kirby and um, but the Miyazaki thing way later on in my lifetime that really to me was a big influence because he really helped me to define how to a good story and, but use sim- you can use simple compositions but you can make them really strong and it tells a story without words telling a story without words was became really important to me back when I was working because that way there was no misinterpretation of what you were trying to, you know, the point you were trying to get to in a story. So it was kind of like I, I kind of learned on my own, uh, self-taught. I had friends who were in the industry, uh, Will Manio, Rick Holberg, who were really good artists, and I would also study their work. It was kind of like self-taught, I guess you could say. I just, I just had a thirst, and I had a th- the other thing I wanted to always do was trying to be better than I was yesterday. And so I've always tried to do the best I can today, but know that tomorrow I can draw the same, the same drawing or the same scene better tomorrow. So I, I just kept pushing myself that way. That's kind of how I taught myself uh, cinema was through uh, curiosity, I guess you could. <laughs> now, looking, looking at your room, it's kind of like looking through my, my childhood of sorts. I mean, you've been in so many different animated series that really shaped of my 10, 12 your brain going, you know, growing up throughout the years. But um, one thing that really kind of stood out to me, just because it's it was somewhat an anomaly, and I'm really, I'm really eager to to hear you talk about it a little bit, is uh, Pride of the X Men. That was this kind of standalone episode. I remember watching, I was watching, and and the show just spontaneously came on. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. Nobody had any idea this thing even existed or was coming. And it was this fantastic cartoon that was just terrific, and I fell in love with it immediately, and then, you know, that was it. It was done no more. Can you explain a little bit kind of how that 
episode came to be, and and was it designed as a pilot for an ongoing series that never happened, or what uh, what happened with that whole thing? Well, back at Marvel Productions, the lady in charge of, of uh, Marvel Productions at the time was Margaret Lesh. She was in charge of the studio, along with Stan Lee. And we had been trying to find a way to get the X-Men on the air. And so what came up was that they, they had got some financing from different sources, one of it being Marvel East. I think, it was Mar- I think it was Marvel, but I may not be correct on the sourcing. But anyway, we, they got financing to do this pilot. And we wanted to try and get NBC, ABC, or CBS, you know, get them all, get somebody interested in maybe the show, because we we had we knew this thing could work if we could get it out there. And when they got the financing in place, one of the things it was it was the three of us, myself, Rick Holberg, and Will Minio, and we were we're all comic book fans, and the X Men's always been my favorite comic book at Marvel, and so we all three of us got involved with writing the story. Uh, Will Minio did the opening Act 1, uh, Rick Holberg did Act 2, and then I did Act 3. And so initially, prior to the X-Men, the bad guys were supposed to be the Sentinels. But the people involved had toys in mind. So they said, no, you got to include the bad guys. <laughs> we can make toy figures of and, and sell as toys. Of so course. We had, yeah, so we had to retool the story to become Magneto and all the all those other cohorts that were there. So I said, fine, we're, we, we, we just want to get this thing out there so we can sell it. So that was the genesis of the beginning of the story. So we drew it, and we were really lucky enough to get toy animation over in Japan. At that time, it was like the premier company to do animation. So we got them on board, and then everything was going great. We, got, we sent it over. We got great stuff coming back. They did everything we asked them to do. And, and actually, it did more. And we put it out there, and it didn't sell. <laughs> but we were like, I know, we were like, uh, we were putting out our best foot forward and trying to get it sold, but, you know, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what happened with the Pride of the X-Men. It just, it was a pilot. We were trying to get it on the air, but it didn't happen, you know. Yeah. But fast forward, Margaret Lesh, who was in charge of Marvel Productions, she became the head honcho at Fox Kids. Mm-hmm. And so when she, became, when she got that position, she brought the three of us, myself, Rick Holberg, Will Minio, back on and said, look, I can greenlight this series now. We're going to do the X-Men. Nice. And that's, that's how I got started. And so a lot of credit has to go to Margaret because she really believed in the project at Marvel Productions and then at Fox Kids. She gave us the green light, and that's how we got out on the air. And that series of Fox Kids kind of launched a superhero animated resurgence in the 90s, too. So, I mean, it looks like you guys were a little bit ahead of your time with part of the X-Men, maybe. There's also some embarrassing things where we tried to introduce the X-Men. We were trying to get the X-Men seen. Like, we put them into one of these Spider-Man's Amazing Friends where we introduced the yep. X-Men. And, I remember uh, that. And <laughs> they forced us to give them an Australian accent. <laughs> That was actually on my list of questions. Is why did you um, have an Australian accent back in the back in the uh, Spider-Man? Back then, back then there was some there was some kind of show on called. There was a movie out that was really popular called Crocodile Dundee. They're the awesome. Oh, yeah. And and the executive said, "Make him an Australian." And, and <laughs> unfortunately, we were, yeah, we unfortunately we were just storyboard <laughs> artists. We weren't in charge to tell them 
that's a bad idea. Right. It just had, it just was like, okay, shit. All right, fine. <laughs> I had forgotten it, about that. Australian accent. <laughs> they want a piece of fruit. I mean, we just let, oh, God. You know, but at least, at least we got him to look like the character. We did the costume. I think we did the brown costume at that time. We did our best with, within the restrictions we had at the time. Yeah, I can because, tell you, as, as a kid, Australian accent or no, it was pretty freaking awesome to see the X-Men in the Spider-Man cartoon. So, mission accomplished. Oh, thanks, Ed. I got a chance to draw that, I think, the third act of, of Firestar, where the, I think it's Juggernaut who comes and starts kicking their butts. And I, I drew that entire sequence awesome. all, the way to, all the way to the end, because I wanted, I wanted to do that. So I got a chance to put in, I put in a few anime... Uh, shots, because I wanted to take take up the visuals from what people normally see, mm-hmm. and so that's that was another way of uh, trying to make the show different from what was out there at the time. So, if you were going to show off your your Action. reel, uh, what's the project that you're most proud of? Oh, at this point, the the project that I'm most proud of is the X Men. the The second thing is the GI Joe opening titles. Because that really, that was the best animation I got on anything I've ever storyboarded. I did the G.I. Joe opening movie credits. And so a lot of times when you, did, when you do storyboards and you send it overseas, you might get back 50% of the visuals you wanted because sometimes they don't have the budget to do everything you yeah. call for. And so they'll simplify stuff or just ignore it. <laughs> and... Yeah, and then when I did the J.H.O. opening titles, I put in little nuances of things in the background. This happens here, this happens here, this happens here. And when I got the uh, when the footage came back, I was like, holy shit, they did it all. Look at that. Nice. It, was, it was incredible. Now, when you do those storyboards, do you know what the music accompaniment is going to be beforehand? Or do they do that after they get the animation? It's just amazing how pervasive the theme songs are with these intros. I'm just curious kind of how those two work together. And sometimes you get lyrics, okay. uh, but most of the time what you get is nothing. And so what with the J.I. Joe movie, I had nothing. I kind of just, <laughs> I had a length of time that said, okay, they needed to be four minutes or something like that. So I just, okay. The, the supervising producer on this was Don Jerwich. And the other two directors was myself, Boyd Kirkland, and Frank Parr. And they said, okay. I need you guys to come up with an opening title for the J.I. Joe movie. Come, bring me back something. So we all, all went off on our own tangent. And for me, I, that was about the time when the Statue of Liberty was having some kind of anniversary or something. And so that keyed in my imagination. Okay, let me do the Statue of Liberty. That seems like it's t- very topical. And so I just started making up. I just started letting my imagination go. Every image you, that you saw in the, in the opening titles is just... Just a stream of consciousness. I was just channeling all the... Um, see, at that point, I had done... I had worked on about 65 episodes of G.I. Joe. So I had a lot of imagery in my head. So I just started making up stuff. I just said, okay, let me do this. Okay, it'd be cool if we did this. What about, you know, let's put Destro over here. Let's do, let's do this character. And I tried to make sure to um, showcase every every G.I. Joe. Some, some of them that don't normally get billboard a scene i tried to put every jay joe character in a shot and uh they did it <laughs> excellent and the music came afterwards so they yep. they wrote the music yeah. based upon the visuals they had there so everything worked out really great it did indeed uh, i mean i think you know many fans consider that 
one of the best best elements of the whole J.J. animated series was that the opening there for J.J. the movie. It was just so expertly done. Everything really came together well in that particular. Yeah, I like I said, I was. That's probably the most thing. I'm, the one sequence that I've drawn that I'm most proud of it would yep. be that sequence because it came across. It was like wow. I'm glad my name's on that. Yeah, you should be. Were you specifically putting characters in those places, or were they just pulling from the character model and said, don't use any green shirts, let's go over the budget and make sure that we get clutch? So, no, you were actually placing them all. Yeah, I was just grabbing characters that I had worked on for the 65 episodes, and I tried to put characters that Alpine and some other ones that you normally don't see and put them in the foreground and let them do stuff. Yeah, I made all the choices for what characters went where, so it was a lot of fun. I mean, the, the, the anime technique of like showing, like, I think one of the shots I did was, uh, you see, all, you, you have, you're you're looking at it from a camera point of view, and then you have one of the one of the Cobra guys punch the camera. That was like stuff I just, oh, this would be cool to be, you know, it, it was, was all fantastic, man. stuff that was just coming out of my my imagination. I recently just found my my spaghetti roughs. Of the opening title, I, I, I found it in a box somewhere. I went, "Oh God, look at this!" <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's nothing like the finished drawings. Everything's drawn on model, really pretty, and everything is. That's pretty cool. It's funny what turns up. Yeah, I just recently found it. Right now, you know, since I retired, my wife saying was telling me, "When are you going to get rid of all this junk?" I'm going, "Yeah, I guess I probably should go through." It. And that's I've been going through looking what I got, and it's like that's where yeah. keep it came those. Up Jeez, I haven't seen this in 30 years. Just, but I, you know, be, yeah, between my wife and I, I'm, I'm the pack rat, so that's why that happened, you know. Hey, I mean, you're the comic book guy. I don't throw stuff away. She throws everything away, so. Not only you're, you're not only saving everything, you're finding bags to slide them in. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been doing recently, finding old storyboards. And when I do find some boards that are intact, I'll scan it and send it to my friends. Hey, look, here's a board you did like back 20 years ago. I'll make a PDF and send it off to them before I before I throw it away because it's like I I literally have boxes of of all these storyboards that I got to give them away or I got to scan it. You know, I got to do something with hey, this stuff. Awesome, we're we're in. Yeah, you know, I can send we're them in. to you guys if you wanted. Ooh, I like the sounds <laughs> of that. Uh, we'll start making up addresses <laughs> you can send them to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, let's see if I can remember anything for Jay. Oh, with GI Joe, I did the opening, you know, the movie opening, and I also did the opening sequence. So, the the part where you see Pythona sneaking into the uh, headquarters. Oh, I think nice. the first that's, twelve that's minutes. That's the second that's best part me. of the movie. I made all wow. of so, <laughs> That was an awesome sequence. I mean, no lie, no lie. Yeah. I mean, that that's fantastic. The timing <laughs> and the, ah. <laughs> Oh. That was all me. I had it up to the point where they, I think they go to the place, someplace in, in the snow, and then Cobra attacks. That's where I stopped. And then I think my friend Frank Parr took off. Well, it was a Boy Kirkland. I don't know. Sure. It's one of the two guys. Uh, Boy Kirkland went on to be a direct, a very famous director over at uh, on Batman, the animated series. Yep. And Frank Parr went on to being the director on uh, Gargoyles at Disney, along uh. with some other... Some, along with some other shows. So, well, we all started, you know, Marvel Productions. And uh, actually, I started Formation, but I met, him, I met those other two guys later on in life. Nice. And so we all became good friends and stuff. It's like the cornerstone of anim- animation right there, so you three guys. It's pretty impressive. 
Oh, thanks. It's like I said, we, we're we're in the right place at the right time because he once once He Man became a huge syndication hit, it opened the doors to a whole bunch of other syndicated shows like GI Joe, like Ninja Turtles, like you know all the other stuff out there. And it's because of He Man we got got a shot at having all this entertainment because He Man broke the doors open. So you know, I always. My friends who were working at Filmation, I always tell them, thanks, you guys, <laughs> you gave me some more work and got a chance to do some regular ad- adventure Which shows. Which He-Man didn't let him do. Punched again. <laughs> <laughs> right, you couldn't do that in He-Man, and that's where I got, that's actually where I got started working, because we had, I used to work on Lone Ranger, and he had a gun and couldn't shoot anything. And it, they couldn't punch anybody. I mean, it was like, you know, the Lone Ranger would be standing there, and there's a bad guy on it. He would shoot the chandelier, the chandelier would fall, you, and you wouldn't show it hitting the guy. There would be an off-screen camera shake, and then you cut and see the guy's been captured by the chandelier. Or, or somebody would run at Tonto to, to attack him. Tonto would step to the side, the character would go through frame, then the frame would shake, and then you cut to the bad guy, he ran into a wall, and he's on the floor. I mean, that's the extent of the quote-unquote action we could do back at Filmation because the, the networks were like in fear of being accused of putting violence on Saturday morning. And so we, we really had a hands tied in trying to do a regular action adventure show. But when He-Man did what he did and then Hasbro came in and said, okay, we're going to do Transformers, we're going to do G.I. Joe, we're going to do My Little Pony, we're going to do all this stuff. And we didn't have to worry about the networks. We went, cool, all right. Let's start punching away. But, no, you know, obviously nobody could die. It was, it was for kids. And every time somebody, you know, a plane gets shot, we had to show the pilots jumping out with a parachute. But other than that, it was uh, regular action-adventure shows. I mean, G.I. Joe and Cobra, they, they're the worst shots in the world. I mean, they, <laughs> you can shoot 100 lasers left and right, and nobody hits anybody. It's the A-team. It's A-team type action. It's a lot of pyrotechnics and eye candy. Buzz Dixon always tells us that there are plenty of casualties in G.I. Joe. They were just all off camera. <laughs> yeah, I, I go with that. Go so with you, you bring up the, the age of syndication. And, and if you look at television as a whole, it's a really small window. You were there again. You're kind of lucky that, that it happened for you right at the beginning of the 80s. But by the beginning of the 90s, television was already moving out of that model and, and things were going more to cable. How did how did the industry change for you? You know, we've 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 covered a lot of this stuff from from the, the the glory days of us when we were you know when Justin and I were kids in the '80s. But you kept working well past that. How how did you know how did things change when it wasn't the wild west, if you will, of, of syndicated programming? Well, pretty much once syndication started dying out, we had to go back to the, we had to go back to regular television, CBS, NBC, ABC. And and find work, and basically that you were now you were kind of stuck with the regular TV networks, and so the the work got uh, a lot thinner. I'll put it that way. Whereas before, when they had syndication programs, there were people working at the network and for network shows, and there were people working for syndicated shows. When the syndicated shows were out there, man, we had a ton of you know it was like work coming out of the ears, and the. The shows I remember working on in the 80s, I mean, I don't know if you knew, knew about it, but you know, I worked on, let's see, Thundar, I uh, worked on 
Mr. T, Turbeltine. Well, you got um, the you got the Justin Bell uh, trifecta, and that you work GI Joe, cops, and Exo Squad. Oh man, I, yeah, I had an Exo Squad question lined up for you a little bit later. That's for sure. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That that was headed up by by Will Minio, my friend. And, yep. uh, that was his baby, you know. He was uh, Will was working with me on the X Men. He was he, we got that show off the ground, and then he got the shot to do the Exo Squad. He could be like the the showrunner on that, so to speak. And so he left the X Men to do Exo Squad, which was like great. You know, he had a great opportunity. And so, but in terms of work in the '90s, basically what happened it was a little bit slim pickings for about the first couple of years in the '90s, and then the X Men hit the air. It was like a godsend to Fox Kids because Fox Kids was like a little, it was kind of a struggling kids network that were trying to get their feet on the ground. And when Margaret, you know, got the X-Men greenlit and we were trying to get it on the air, we had an overseas production company that was trying to basically screw us on quality. And the show was originally supposed to hit the air in September, but we told Margaret, Hey, you know this is this is what's going on. She said she, on her level of, of executive, got on the phone and made them say, "Okay, look, you're going to put the quality into the show, and we're going to delay the show until the work is done." So what happened was, we didn't debut in September, which was traditional for every show at that time. We I think we showed something at the end of October, and then we. We didn't show, I think maybe we showed a second one in November, but basically we didn't, the show didn't really premiere until January of the next year, which had been unheard of. And Fox was actually being penalized because they had guaranteed commercial time and, you know, they, all that money. There was a lot of money involved that had to be given back because we missed our sure. air dates and stuff. But when we find, the, what happened was also when we finally got a chance to get it on the air, the, the big thing that happened was all of the other shows had gone through all of their 13 episodes by then. And so all the other shows were into rerun, and we were the only show that brand new. We had 13 new episodes starting in January after everybody was done. And so we got the benefit of, of getting all the eyeballs to watch us in January until June, I think January to June or something like that. And so we, the X-Men was, it clicked. It was a big hit with the kids. And once, I think, I'm not sure exactly when Batman came on board, but I think we had X-Men, we had Batman, and Power Rangers. And note that one, two, three combination put Fox right through the roof. They were like number one for like five or eight years or something like that because of that. That and once the X-Men was a hit, I was employed for about the next five years working on a series. Four years, sorry. Another four years. And so, in the 90s, that's how I got, um, we stayed employed. You just, it was slim pickings, but when you got hooked onto a series, you were, you know, you pretty much were employed for a long time. And the other thing that, that's not connected to, to what I did, but at the time, there was Jeffrey Kassenberg and, and the other guy that was in charge of Disney. Kassenberg went to DreamWorks and I can't remember the other head honcho from Disney. They didn't like each other, so they were like trying to poach artists from each other to keep each other from from getting the artists. And so, in the mid '90s, these guys were trying to outbid 
each other to get artists to work on their show. You know, the, the guy at Disney was hiring people just so that Katzenberg couldn't hire them. And so, <laughs> so from the mid-90s to the end of the 90s, it was like, man, we were making incredible salaries. You know, <laughs> not me, but my friends, they were like, we would talk about, hey, I'm making this much money. I'm making that much money. It's like, wow. So in general, in the industry in the 90s, it was, man, if you could hold a pencil, you could get paid really well. That was really good, really good money and good times. And so it kind of ended once. God, I can't remember the guy's name. Maybe you guys can remember the guy who was in charge of Disney, not in the 90s. Whatever his name is, he bought ABC, which was the company that was going to output all DreamWorks' TV shows. And by Disney mm-hmm. buying that, DreamWorks had no place to put their, their TV animated shows. And so basically, that, you know, it, it got shut down. They had no place to put their product. And right after that, people had these great contracts at the end of the 90s. Didn't get renewed. They got let go. <laughs> the great times, the, the roaring 20s or the roaring 90s, <laughs> it, was gone. it was gone, you know. So everything, about the year 2000, everything dropped down to normal. Yeah, that ABC Disney deal was was some shady stuff. It was all done to it was between Kassenberg and the other guy. That that was just a little pissing contest between the two of them. Nice when a uh, pissing matches are in, involved the acquisition of multi-billion dollar worldwide television networks. Yeah. I yeah, it's amazing cuz yeah, it was like yeah, it was That's like a scope that I can't even imagine. Oh, tell me about it. Working at Marvel, I was outside looking looking in, so I don't know that I can see what's I saw my friends getting big salaries, two, three, four, six thousand dollars a week. I mean, you're talking about a lot of great money. You're and, talking about uh, Michael Eisner being the guy in charge of Disney. Yeah, guy? that's the name. That's the name I could remember. Eisner. Yeah, that's the that's the guy. And Eisner and, and the other guy and Katzenberg, they just didn't like each other. They got they were fighting for mid nineties to the end of the nineties, and Eisner won. That's yeah, so yeah. We we talked a little bit about Exo Squad, but I, you know, just it's it's one of my personal favorites, and I was just kind of curious. You, you've talked a little bit about how you went from being able to not punch anybody on screen to be able to punching people on screen, and you people still you know, parachuted out of the jets at the last minute or whatever. But Exo Squad seemed to take all those those issues and throw them out, and it was just pretty much hardcore space combat only in animated form. How did that? come about how did you guys get the leeway you had to do that story the right way and how did you primarily well minio i guess would be the real face of of the series but tell the story in such a serialized fashion it was just such a different way of doing animation even back in the 90s that just fascinated me and still fascinates me today can you tell us a little bit about how that series came about and what the genesis was i'm afraid will would be the ultimate who would know exactly what went on. I knew about it peripherally. Like okay. I said, he was. we both worked together on the X-Men, but when he got a shot at to do the Exo Squad, where he would be basically the showrunner, he had a specific vision of what he wanted to try and accomplish that we were not able to do since we, since we got into animation. So when he went over there, he pretty much said he was the progenitor for making that happen. He was kind of like the showrunner, who, and mm-hmm. everything that happened in that series was, was because of Will's effort. And people, characters perishing and not living, you know, like getting actually dying and not coming back in the series. That was a lot of his doing. Will was as much, Will was probably actually more into anime than I was because he was more 
familiar with it than than at an earlier stage than I was. He's he's a little bit older than I am, and so he really caught on to that before me, and he he really incorporated a lot of that into Exo Squad, and he that was it. He wanted to do his show, and he made he made he he basically made it his show, and that's that's how it came about. I. He allowed me to do a couple of storyboards for him on the series, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much what I did. I was like one of the story artists on the show, but the day to day that for that information, you're probably going to talk to Will because I, okay. I only know of it peripherally. But um, I cannot. Have you guys interviewed him yet, or talked to him? No, we haven't. You know, he'd be a guy we'd love to get on if you want to put in a good word for us. I put, mean, a, I'd, put in a good <laughs> word for us. Yeah, well, 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 despite I, what. Despite how this is going, put in a good word. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, we're good friends. I talk to him almost every week, so uh, I, can, I, can, I can let him know they want to interview you for the Exo Squad. I'm pretty sure he'd love to do it. That'd be great. We've been known to step out of our familiar territory every so often. Say, I'll sit down for a couple hours and just you know, fanboy all over Exo Squad, and then we can just happen, <laughs> happen to record it and post it later, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, in, in my mind, I can see Justin sitting at his desk as you're talking about this. A form Exo Squad podcast. <laughs> notes to himself. Yeah, no, he, Will was. Yeah, he was pretty much a pioneer because he was like the out of the three of us, myself, Rick Holberg, and Will. Will's pretty much like the uh, the guiding force. He was trailblazing for the rest of us to get stuff done, and so he was a key player for getting a lot of the. Um, opportunities that came up. I mean, a lot of the G.I. Joe commercials, I won't say all of them, but most of them were uh, drawn by Will. He did those. Amazing. Some of them later on in the series were done by uh, Keith Tucker, George Good, myself, but the bulk of them were always done by Will in the beginning because he was able to, um, he had the foresight to actually do storyboards that looked like a comic book. Linked, rendered, shading, the whole nine yards. And he, the choice was either Marvel Productions or some other advertising houses. So Will made sure to throw in the kitchen sink. And so we got the account and then everything went from there. So he, he helped quite a bit. <laughs> I that's another one. That was actually another question I had was you guys held on to the contract to do the animation in the commercials for a lot longer than the, the actual series for G.I. Joe. I was wondering who, who was responsible for those because they, they, the, the commercials always had a very uh, a feel of that organized chaos. So I was just wondering who would be behind those. But they're, that you're ans- again, you're answering stuff before I can even ask. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, once we, once Will figured out who did, you know, give him a comic book, we all followed that lead, and every time we did a commercial, we just went all out and did it like like a Marvel comic book, just just fully rendered the sucker, and, and sometimes even with color, so that the, when the clients saw it, they were very impressed, and we kept getting the account. So to, to drag you kicking and screaming back to Joe. Okay. Um, obviously, <laughs> you were... <laughs> I know, really, you know, kicking and screaming, but uh, obviously, you know, if you're if you're placing all those characters and and some of them really obscure back into to, to getting them placed in the movie just to make sure they all had their 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 seconds of time, if nothing else, who were your favorites when you were working on eighty some odd episodes of the program? Who were the guys that you enjoyed working the most? The characters, I guess, I could say I like the characters I enjoyed drawing the most was like. Storm Shadow, Gung Ho, Roadblock, Scarlet, Lady J, Flint, 
uh, Duke. I could draw those characters without a model sheet in front of me because I had drawn them so many, so often, so they were really fun to do and to draw. And um, at some of the voice recordings, I got to know the, the actors, the actor, like the guy who did Roadblock. He doesn't look like a Roadblock, but he's got the... He's got a, <laughs> You know, he's got a cool <laughs> voice and stuff, and so um, that th- was a lot of fun. The guy who did a Destro, you know, I got a chance to meet him. So it was, those are, I guess those are some of the fun characters. Um, I just recently, I think within the last couple of years, I never met in person uh, the Baroness, the actress who does the Baroness. I just met her a couple of years ago. It's like, you know, I kept missing her at the recording. Because a lot of times when they do the recordings for the show, you don't bring in the whole cast. You bring in who's, you bring in who's available. They do their lines, and then other people, they just rotate them in and out because there's sometimes the cast is very, it's too many characters, so you can't have that many people in the room. So um, the few times I was there, you know, I got to see actors and didn't see some others. So, so uh, yeah, those characters. I tried to draw in Cover Girl, I tried to draw in characters you don't see very often just to give them some airtime, visual airtime, you know, Alpine, Bazooka. Um, stuff like that. You did write for the the one episode, to your credit, Hearts and Cannons. Yeah. Do you remember anything about? You, obviously, you got to. I'm guessing you got to select your characters there. Yeah. And you I, did pick some guys who didn't get used very often, and even even the like the B team in that episode is some folks we didn't see very much. So what? Why? Why Dusty and Footloose? Uh, we once we went through the character list, we found. Basically, the story I wanted to do was, I'm going to show my age now, I want to do a Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and a road trip type show. Yes. So we, so that was the whole <laughs> idea. So we picked two characters that would work. We thought these two personalities would work well together as being, you know, so different from each other. And so, okay, these two guys, they try and save a girl, and they're kind of not the best at what they do, but they kind of get the job done, and then they, we thought we'd just have some fun with that, some comedy out of it, and just, and that way, you know, focusing on just two characters instead of a hundred of them, and just make a nice little character show out of it, you know? Very cool. (laughs) I was not expecting the Hope and Crosby Road movie. Yeah, see, I'm showing my age now. I'm I'm, I'm 61 now, so it's like I'm showing my age of the, the stuff I used to see a long time ago, and it was... That that that's what came up in my head when I was thinking about that story. <laughs> no, that's pretty awesome because if, if you're going to have a model, that's a good model. Yeah. Now, can you think of anything back with you know, staying with GI Joe that you guys tried to push the envelope on from an artistic perspective, or that you you put in there that either Hasbro or whoever Marvel Studios might have nixed anything that um, they deemed was kind of too intense for kids programming um god i'm trying to remember i there probably was but um i can't recall any right now i know there are there there are things we put into the shows that didn't make it either because of time or because the director had a different choice there was one where we had a show where i think it's called skeletons in the closet with a lot of uh, dead people or something like that and some shots got taken out because they thought it'd be too scary but other than that, the themes we got a lot of the stuff we wanted to do got put in. Nice. But just a few things got dropped out that I can remember. I wish I could remember though. Like I said, it's it's been a little while, so <laughs> it's not fresh. When I one of the shows I remember directing was Million Dollar Medic. Yep. And so I got a chance to uh do shots, add shots in that were not in the script to try and 
kick up the action a little bit. A lot of anime shots and stuff. My best memories that. Oh, that's right. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, the. <laughs> I think in Mean Dalmatic, I, I, I shot the guy in that Hasbro was or somebody like got really upset about. Was, I think some girl was sunbathing topless, and, she, <laughs> and then a GI Joe, the shadow of a GI Joe jet goes over, and then she lifts up, and then there's a cassette player in front of her covering up her boobs, and so it was kind of like. <laughs> It was to have, you know, just trying to do some fun, you know, and then, you know, they almost wanted to take that scene out, but it's like it stayed in. It was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, someone let it go through. But yeah, I remember, that was one when I said, hmm, <laughs> almost crossed the line there. But, you know, I did that shot. I remember doing it. I said, oh, let me see if I could get this through, you know, what the hell. <laughs> and uh, there was a, another show that I did with all the G.I. Joes get taken to some island where all these giant toys attack them. Mm-hmm. And, gotcha. Uh, the Games Master and, uh, or something like that? Yeah, something like yes. that. And um, it wasn't in the script, but I decided to put Baroness in a bathing suit for the whole episode. Yep. <laughs> My adolescent mind remembers that well. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was fun, you know. I did a little risque shot where you see her go, get into the... the um, the dressing room, and the, you see her from on the top shot. You know, you, you, the camera's on the top of her, like the, the upper part of me. You see it start to unzip her dress. The camera drops to the floor, and then you see the rest of the dress drop off. She steps out of it, and then when you pan up, she's in a bathing suit or something. So I kind of like uh, try, trying to be, you know, throw a little bit of like, oh, wonder what's going on there, you know, that kind of stuff. It, it's small things like yeah. that. It's, it may be official that Justin Bell is now your fault, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> the man I became. Yeah, okay. Because of you. Yeah, so when I told I did act, I think I did act one of that Game Master. I'm not sure, but what I, when I told the guys, I said, the other guy's working on the show, I said, look, she's going to be in a bathing suit. Don't draw in the, in the, in the Baroness outfit. And everybody went, okay, cool. And we all just followed <laughs> it. Yeah, I'm sure, that was, I'm sure that was a tough fight. Yeah, really tough. <laughs> and uh, so it was a lot of really fun. Really twisted arms on that one. Yeah. I, as I'm talking to you, I'd, I'd forgotten all about that until I just said it just now. I forgot about that sequence. I can't remember. Keep talking. I, maybe I'll remember something else. <laughs> Give me another question. Your your obvious love of superheroes permeates your resume. Yeah. Um, if you had if you had to pick one, just one hero, you're gonna you're gonna do. Their thirteen episode story. What? Who? Who'd you pick? I would have picked Superman. I'm a big Superman fan. I like the Kryptonian. I, I like the, the show. I like the concept of what he is. If either it's Superman or Captain America, it's one of those two. I love those two characters. We at Marvel. We did. Oh, that's right. I forgot. At Marvel, Rick Holberg and I tried to sell a um, Captain America series okay. back in the, back in the '80s, mid '80s somewhere. And we had, obviously it didn't sell, but we had done presentations, we had done story, we did some synopsis, uh, we did character designs. It didn't take off. We, uh, and we were kind of disappointed. I think Will did one too. Will did, uh, he did a version of Captain America. He did, he got even further. I mean, he, he got animation done on Captain America. And yeah, it still didn't sell. So it, it, it just was, no, it was not to be, but we did our best to get it out there. God, I forgot Wow, that's that's old stuff. Huh? <laughs> no, I also saw you. You had some involvement in the uh, 
the animated series for Bucky O'Hare. Do you recall any work you did on that particular project? Yeah, I was. I remember working on that. It was a, I think that was a Neil Adams project. Yep. And um, I was one of the story artists. I wasn't one of the directors. Wait a minute, was I a director on that? My God, I can't remember. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I. I can't remember. IMDb credits you as one, so so yeah. just roll with it. Yeah. I think I. <laughs> I think it was one of the directors. You're totally a storyboard director. Yeah. Totally a director. And um, it was only 13 episodes, and, and I remember working directly with uh, uh, Neil Adams from Continuity on that. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with that series, though, the reason, in my opinion, why it didn't take off was that it didn't have enough, it, it didn't have enough uh, money behind it, basically. Gotcha. It, it, there's a, there, the overseas production, it was close, it was so close to being a good show. But it, the production money just wasn't there, and so the animation came back a little bit wonky. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we couldn't we couldn't we couldn't save it. We we did our best, and see back then also, I I think Bucky happened before the X Men. I was doing mm-hmm. Bucky O'Hare. I think there was something called Space Cats. You know, something called mm-hmm. a Little Shop of Horrors. I was working on all those things, and. Most of the, back then, everything was like only one season. Yeah, one. Everything was like they they got it out there. Series didn't take, so they do another one. They, you know, every, yeah. everything's rotating thirteen episodes. That's all. And so, if you can imagine, when we got the green light to do the X Men, we thought we only had thirteen. And so, at the end of the thirteen, we all had our resumes. We were out trying to find more <laughs> work because uh, everything from Bucky O'Hare to all the things I just mentioned. There were like one season wonders, and then you just keep working, you know, then you just try and find your next job. Yeah. And that one luckily clicked, and, you know, I had continuous employment, thank God, for a while. (laughs) Never a bad thing. Yeah. Interesting how things kind of come full circle, because, you know, kind of the reason I brought up Bucky O'Hare, a couple couple reasons is number one one of the creators of the character is larry hama who also wrote you know the gi joe comics and kind of created a lot of those a lot of um history on on the comic side of things and we are actually um some good friends of of ours a toy company boss fight studio actually just got the license to make new bucky o'hare toys which is kind of neat so i didn't know if you had heard of any of those at all or if, if you even have any interest in toys i know you've worked on a lot of properties that kind of incorporate action figures and, and merchandising and toys i don't know if that played a role in any of your any of your collecting or interest uh, along the superhero realm um i did hear about the series getting picked up again and maybe becoming a, a series again, which is like, oh, that's great. Oh, you know, if they can do it better the second time, it'd be great because we, if there's any institutional memory of what, what, what went, went wrong back then, hopefully when they do it again, it'll, they won't make the same mistakes twice. Right. Uh, uh, for me, yeah, no, I, I, have to, I have too many toys. <laughs> <laughs> I have too many figures. I have too many. Every time I worked on a show, you know, we either got free toys or I went out and bought the toys. Nice. So it's like I got tons of GI Joe stuff. I got X Men come out out of my ears. I have um, I had Transformers. I had what's the other one? Uh, oh God, what's that? Bionic Six and, oh. and stuff like that. All I shows. <laughs> well, so, sounds like you need a bigger house, Larry. Yeah, that's what my wife said. She's <laughs> she's going. What are you gonna do with all this junk? You know? <laughs> and I was like, um, you know. She's kind of right. I probably, you know, stuff. There's stuff I probably I'm going to hang on to, but I'm probably going to start selling it to collectors and 
you know, put it in hands of people that really remember this stuff fondly, like I did, and uh, you know, move it on out. I I have storage units, plural, with stuff in it that I got to get. You know, I got to, you know, it's costing me money every month, and, yeah. and uh, I got to move it out. Too many things. Too many things. That's for sure. Um, so, so we shouldn't send you any Bucky O'Hare toys, then? Is that what you're telling us? Uh, actually, I got some of the original ones. Yeah, they're, cool. they're, they're in my room. Um, I got Bucky O'Hare. Oh, that's right. I got Pirates of Deep Water. I got um, the Superpower Hour when we when they did uh, the Superpowers versus Dark Side stuff, Secret Wars, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. I got I got too many toys. <laughs> <laughs> I was just having. I was, you know, kid in a candy store, man. I was just having fun all all day long, you know. That's great. Ah, superpowers, greatest yeah. greatest DC toy yeah. line ever. I, I, Still, I had so much fun working on that show. Still. My uh, director on that show was a uh, was a uh, was another Larry Latham. That's right. Uh, he unfortunately, he passed away, but he was a very good friend. And um, when he brought me on to do uh, work on the show. That's back when they were doing, um, you know, Dark Side and all of his uh, underlings and stuff. And so we got a chance to really Kirbyize a lot of storyboards and backgrounds and stuff. So we really, we really went all out. And, and me being a big fan of Kirby, it was like, great, I love this. You know, I can do Kirby. Or I can try and do Kirby. <laughs> and just, you know, basically take take yeah. what take that and just add basically add a cinematic approach to all the. All the shots and 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 sometimes I try and um, maybe take a scene Kirby did and, may, and then maybe alter it a little bit and just make it very cinematic for the show. I, I did that on oh god I did that on this I I I was a director on the second season of Fantastic Four and we got a chance the second season to do basically the first season was done really badly. And so they, they brought myself in and Tom T to do the second season. And I got a chance to, when I left the X-Men to do the Fantastic Four, we got a chance to do all the classic stories. And we, there's one episode, well, actually over most of, the, most of the series, we went back to the original Kirby stuff. There are Kirby, Stan Lee stuff. And um, there's one episode that I'm really proud of on that series was um, we did the Black Panther and we kind of copied what was in the comic books and put it into, into the show. And when, when we went to the um, Wakanda, you know, I, I, there are certain panels you know, from the comic book I put into the show and made it just like Kirby. Kirby machinery, Kirby angles. You know, I animated certain panels from the comic books and put it into the show just so I could have some fun with it. You know, it's like I did, I did Kirby. And I did it right. I tried to do... Nice. I tried to do what I saw when I was a kid reading the books. <laughs> Those strange. Anytime there was a, a big Kirby oh, yeah. weapon, it always had all the extra <laughs> tubes and the, you know, the little, yeah. the little blast radius I, right I at the nozzle. I loved that stuff as a kid. And... Going, you know, my, when I was in high school, and my friends, there were like three of us, and we were all like these three geeks, and we and we all bought comic books. We all drew our own versions of comic of. We drew our own version of the Avengers, the X-Men, the Justice League. We, you know, we were kids. We were just we were drawing it with pencils, markers, crayons, whatever. Sure. And um, it was just a lot of fun to, to, to do that back in high school. 
and to, you know, to fast forward, you know, get a shot to do the same thing as a professional on a real TV show and have it go on the air. And that was, like I said, I was in the best, I was in the right place at the right time to put my childhood on the screen, basically. That was, it was just extraordinary. I really, really feel lucky. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody before or since did bad guys like no, Jack Kirby. No, in his design sense would always fascinate us. You know, like, you pick up an issue of Thor, and every time you turn around, his father, Odin, he'd have this weird helmet. It's like, how in the hell would you come up with that? You know, we, because we would try and imitate, okay, let's make up our own super, super god guy and try and imitate Kirby. And it was like, it was almost impossible because the man was like, his design sense was like incredible. But, you know, it was, it was fun. But, yeah, I, <laughs> Kirby, he, I got a chance to meet him out here because when I moved out, uh, I live out near Thousand Oaks, and he actually lived out here in um, Newberry Park. And so I got a chance to see him a lot and go to his house, talk to his wife, Roz. Sometimes they'd be at the local shopping mall. And I remember introducing my kids to them. I'm going, my God, this is Kirby. You know, my kids, I got my kids that were like six or eight to meet Kirby. They had no idea what the hell I was talking about. But I know that they met him. I told the kids, you met Kirby, and they're going, I have no memory of it. <laughs> oh, and we also, the other guy that was a big influence for me was John Buscema, who was a really, really good artist. Nice, and, yeah. And we brought him down, or well, essentially we, Stanley got him to come out to work with us on Spider-Man's Amazing Friends, and he helped design some characters for us on three episodes. And the other time I got a chance to work with him directly was when I did the Fantastic Four series, the second season. I got him to redesign the characters in his style. And so that's why in the second season they look like John... I don't know if you can tell, but they look like they're, they're designed by John Buscema because I wanted the show to look like, like his drawings. Excellent. So, yeah. Huh. Well, I'm remembering a lot of stuff I've got about. <laughs> you guys are pulling this out of my memory banks. I haven't, I haven't talked about this stuff in years. That's the two. That's really the two parts of the kingdom that, I mean, John Buscema. He he was yes. the definitive Spider-Man, and his yeah. was the definitive Fantastic Four. You know, it just it, you know, it, it, like Doctor Doom. On the other hand, is is again, he's more of a Kirby. Like yeah. Kirby made Doctor Doom pop. That that's that's all. I, I give all the credit there. But but it was really it was Buscema that really kind of, like what yeah. we think of when we think of the thing. Yeah. Is. John Buscema's thing. So yeah, no, I, that, that's pretty awesome that you got to. You're 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 mingling with comic <laughs> yeah, I felt royalty. Really lucky to yeah you know, to, to you know it felt really good to actually talk to these both both of those professionals as a professional as opposed to a fanboy. You know, I got a chance to talk to them like as a I'm a director working on an animated series, but I'm also a great fan of your work and oh, it was really cool. Uh, Gil Kang was another one that I met. Uh, when I was working on um, Thundar the Barbarian, and he's a really, I love his work also. And he was a really nice guy to 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 work with on on that series. I'm trying to think of another another guy. I'm trying. To, oh, uh, Doug Wildy, yeah, Doug Wildy on um, uh, Johnny yeah. Quest. That's right. Oh man, Johnny Quest with, was amazing. Yeah, man, I grew up on his stuff, on his Johnny Quest. Yeah, and I got a chance to do. My version of the Johnny Quest back in 1999, I think, where we, we did a version of Johnny Quest 
just like he did it. But we just we aged the kids maybe about a couple of years, but we kept his original formula. There's a Johnny yeah. Quest. Again, we did season two. Season one was Johnny Quest, but it didn't feel like Johnny Quest to us. It was like the kids were like teenagers, and it, it, it didn't feel like Quest. So when we did the second season, we we talked to the to the exec myself and Davis Joy. We were the executive uh, producers, directors on the series, and we talked them into doing the version that D Doug Wiley did. And that's the version we wanted to do, and so once that happened, we just we we went back into Doctor Zen. We did the the, the walking eyeball monster uh, robot. You know, <laughs> we 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 you know we kind of modernized it a little bit, but we want we want to keep that same core adventure element that that we remembered. We were all. Um, fans of Doug Wiley's work. And so that that makes sense. I remember talking to my brother about that show and that he had like I, I, I didn't get a chance to see it when it first came on and, and he was like, Oh yeah, I caught it a couple times. It was it was alright. They they kinda you know, they kinda modern it up and, you know, they're a little too teen angsty. And then then we actually watched it, which must have been from later and we were both sitting there going, Well no, that was great. <laughs> that was just like <laughs> So I, I think I think we we got stuck over the divide on that one. So it was it was, I remember I remember that late. Yeah, it, that it was one, like that, on two yeah on two series instead of bringing me out instead of bringing in the correct creative team on the ser on the season one. Yeah, I got I got brought in on season two, which was like season two of the Fantastic Four, season two of the Johnny Quest, the Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, and so. We basically retooled everything to, to being what it should have been, but we um, most people didn't know that because they saw season one and said, "Ah, oh, the hell with it," you know. But you know, luckily it's still out there in, re in um, DVDs or reruns, so you know some people saw it, which we're happy about. I was happy about. That's the good you know. part of our generation, Larry, is that we don't let anything go. <laughs> Yeah, well, you guys have the advantage now. You get it's 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 everywhere. I mean, you, at first, you know, DVD streaming services. I mean, it's you guys are lucky. Thumb drives. Yeah, thumb drives. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, if you missed a TV show or cartoon, that was it. You had to wait another year for it to come in reruns. You know, we were, you know, the the times even even better when it even better when it's on the cloud. Oh God, yes. See now, you guys, <laughs> you guys are. You got the cloud, the remote servers. You can see it anywhere you want to now. Now that you, you just brought up the, the, the cloud, one extra thing about my background that maybe it's not on IMDb is that um, when, I got, when I got out of high school, I always wanted to be a comic book artist, but my mom kind of politely said I should get a real job. <laughs> so for, Normally the way that moms can, right? Yes, yes. And from out of high school until about 1980, I used to fix computers for a living. So oh. I, was a, I was a computer technician, and my last job was a systems analyst for, for McDonnell Douglas Aerospace. Nice. And so, nice. so I was, I'm familiar with computers and everything at the time. But when I was working at the aerospace place, I, I'd be working on computers, or I'd be running diagnostics. And while it's, I'm drawing comic book pictures, I'm drawing cartoons, you know, and I'm going, I really, I was getting bored with the computers because I had been working on it for such a long time. And for me, 
I was in my mid twenties, maybe twenty four. I think I was twenty four at the time, and I, I, I had this little epiphany. I said, you know what? I'm not married. I got no kids. I got to give this a shot. I don't want to be an old man of thirty years old and not have <laughs> given it a try. Yeah, I thought thirty was really old, so I was like twenty four. I said, okay, and I actually quit my job as a computer, as a systems analyst, and I went out looking for work. Now I tell most kids, don't do it. It's ass backwards what I did. Don't don't do that ever. You know, you should go look for a job, find a job, then quit. <laughs> but I quit and then went looking for a job. My first job was over at a company called Filmation. And when I went to Filmation, I didn't know anything about animation, so I went in to take a layout test. So I took the layout test. Uh, Herb Hazeltine was the supervisor at the time. I took the test twice, failed twice. I, you know, my anatomy, drawing of anatomy was really not good enough. And I, at the time, I was going, you know, this is the stupidest idea I ever did. Why did I even try and do this? I was really having these doubts in my head. But in my portfolio, when I was in high school, my friends, we, were, we had been drawing our own versions of the Justice League, the Avengers. The Fen- you know, we had drawn our own comic book pages. Herb Hazeltine saw that in my portfolio. And he said, you know, I think you might be better to equipped to work as a storyboard artist. And in my mind, I'm going, what the hell is a storyboard artist? But I went, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he took, so I have the supervisor of layout taking me to supervisor of, of, of the storyboard department, introducing me and asking him to give me a test. His name was Don Christensen. So he gave me, they were working on a show called Sport Building at the time. So he gave me some model sheets. He gave me a piece of the script and he said, go ahead and draw this. So I went home. I read it. And I saw what, you know, I, it, I, I think in my youthful ignorance, it didn't seem to be that hard. So I, I storyboarded what was there and I brought it back the next day. And um, I impressed him. He said, you're done? I went, yeah, here it is. And he liked the work so much, he actually took what I had drawn and put it in the show. And I got hired them that day. And that's how, I, nice. that's how I got started to being a storyboard artist in the business. That that was my first introduction to the animation business. But I tell kids, don't get the job first, then quit. Don't, don't do it my way because I, I was like a dumb kid. I, I did it ass backwards. So I worked at Filmation about a year, year and a half. And then I, that's when I went to Marvel work with Stan Lee. But there's another guy who had been in the business long before me, Floyd Norman, over at um, Disney. He was an animator on the, like 101 Dalmatians and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. When I got hired at Filmation, I had broke a glass ceiling. And I didn't know what he meant. But he said, you know, this could not become a storyboard artist. They couldn't get into story. That was the one place that you couldn't get into. Uh, Floyd was always an animator, an animator assistant. And so he said, you know, I was the first black storyboard artist in Saturday morning when I got hired that day. Wow. And Yeah. And after that, you know, they had a lot more people got hired after me. But I guess I was—I didn't know this until what five, six years ago. I just got hired because I thought I was good, you know. Like, you know, I—I I, I, or got lucky, you know, either one. Uh, that's but, impressive. Yeah. So that's that's a little backstory that just popped in my head. But um, I always, you know, I always—I always thought the business always should work on meritocracy, you know. Just show me how good you are and get hired. Not nothing on color or any of that stuff. And mm-hmm. I never 
I never thought that way. I just drew stuff, kind of self-taught that way. Great. This is awesome. Yeah. It really, because I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that either. I. You know, it's just one of those where it just. Yeah, I had no, I had no idea. Like I said, I, it wasn't until Floyd told me this about, you know, a short time ago. I didn't know there were other people, there were other black artists there, but that they weren't in storyboard. There was like George Good, who was a model designer. There was like Ron Myrick, who was one of the dire- animation directors. So I didn't think much of it. I didn't know I had made a, a significant mark until way later that there had never been a black storyboard artist. <laughs> Too, too green to know how good you were, huh? Yes, exactly. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Justin, what else do you have? I don't know. I think I'm about ready to wrap things up if you if you guys both are. I don't know if you have anything else to... Yeah, I mean, Larry, what uh, what do you have What do you have going on? you making any appearances? you you out on the convention <clears throat> circuit? You said you were retired uh, in, in pre-show. Uh, but still, still doing the occasional freelance work. You have anything that you're working on right now? I've been de- uh, on my on my own properties. I've been uh, developing some of my my um, my own ideas. There, when I, back in the '80s, uh, Charlton Comics they had a they had a book called Charlton Bullseye, and I had created this property called The Vanguards, and it was it was a trio of female uh, bounty hunters that. I had created it back then, and what I've been doing now is, is redeveloping that property for today. You know, utilizing some of the sensibilities and the experiences I've had since since the '80s to try and do something new for today. Especially, you know, with women-led properties, from Wonder Woman to everything else, it's very popular. So I've been trying to redevelop that series for today. So that's one thing I'm working on on my own. The other thing is that. There's a, I'm being represented by an agent, and he's taking me on along with the voice actors of G.I. Joe, and we're going on tour to different conventions, G.I. Joe conventions. Nice. So I'll be joined. Yeah, I think that we have one in Knoxville, Tennessee coming up in October, November. Some I've forgotten exactly when, but I'll be joining them on, on the still tour. So I'll be part of the group. So um, hopefully when the G.I. Joe makes its rounds around the country i'll be able to meet you guys in person that'd be excellent yeah very nice we we, we get out once in a while too when the when the police decide to take the the collars off of our ankles <laughs> the, uh, we get out and do the well see the world yeah <laughs> but free freedom freedom yeah and knowing it's half the battle you know <laughs> yeah absolutely sir so yeah that's what so, working on so that's it for now. Um, you know, my own little Vanguard stuff. Uh, I have some other children's properties I'm working on. It's not as well. It's not that far along, but it's ideas that have been percolating in my head that I basically that are more appropriate for being a children's book for like three to five, five to seven, you know, really young stuff. Um, in addition to some superhero stuff. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to do different, a lot of different things right now because it's, I have the freedom and the time to do a lot of stuff. When my wife is, excellent, man. yeah. When my wife is not, I don't know if you know about honeydews, but it's it's one of the things the wives give you. You know, honeydew this, honeydew that. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I, since I'm not working, I have a list of honeydews now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Just so that's remember what I'm... always always look busy. Yes, there you go. Always look busy. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, anytime we could be of any help to you, man. Anytime you you know, our we can use our you, we we we've got something that you want to, us to plug to our meager audience. Uh, by all means, let us know. We'll be happy to 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 do what we can for you. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I will be in contact with you as soon as it. As soon as it gets further along, that I could have something to show, something more substantial. But yes, thank you. Hey, no worries, sir. Our pleasure. And, uh, so, yeah, absolutely. This was this was a fantastic interview. I was, uh, I sent a sent a message to, to Justin about halfway through. It's like this is awesome. He remembers everything. <laughs> I, I I wish I did. <laughs> But I, you know, I definitely. Oh no, man, we're, really? We go down memory lane with with a lot of folks, and and sometimes it's just you know it's just been too long, and, and you get it, you understand it, you you kind of you kind of got it all. I I try my best. I mean, a lot of stuff that I just said, literally, I haven't thought about for years, and just talking with you, it's starting to pop in my my. Oh yeah, that's that. What about this? Right that? You know. And so, uh, get, that, get that muscle memory going. Yeah, uh, Will Minio remembers even more, so I I will put put you guys in touch with him, and then you guys can take it from there on the Exo Squad because he has a lot of memories too, and a lot of stuff. Awesome. Look forward to that. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Right. Well, thank, thank you so you much, much, sir. We appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, guys. I'm glad you guys I'm glad you guys remembered me. I'm I'm one of these uh, unknown people out here, you know. Well, you know, Un- unsung hero is the term. I was gonna say, your, your name is kind of burned into my my brain a little bit. I mean, it was on the credits for pretty much every animated series that I grew up on. So it's really awesome to kind of put a voice to the name. You know, it's a name that I kind of see in my sleep. You know, with a bunch of other folks, and and it's it's really cool to talk to you. So. Oh, I'm glad it uh it worked because I everything I've worked on, I've always tried to uh, put into the work that I wanted to try and inspire other people with the work that I've done the way I was inspired, you know, being a little kid, you know, single single parent watching cartoons. I wanted to try and inspire someone else to do what I did. And I'm glad I was able to entertain a generation of kids that, you know, you guys you guys like what I did, man. That's cool. Yeah, I mean I'll get a little personal, you know, i I was the son of a single mom as well and I'm a struggling uh, independent author right now trying you know working my way into my own creative uh, my own creative juices flowing so i think a lot of that inspiration is certainly brought on by the animation of my youth so uh, i give you some credit for that for sure cool man thank you good luck with that thank you here we go it is uh, larry f houston storyboard artist for gi joe a real american hero and countless other projects we have all of your happiness <laughs> thanks for doing it thanks very much Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.